Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them when he was at the table with them. He took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God for the people of God. Be so there's a few paragraphs in chapter 24 before where we began to read where Luke recounts the resurrection and the story of the women going to the tomb and finding that it is empty, there is nobody there, and then seeing a vision of angels telling, proclaiming, if you will, that Christ is alive. Then we began to read in verse 13 right after that. So our story is happening on the same day. It's the day of the resurrection. These events are just now unfolding and these two are trying to figure out as they walk on this dusty road toward Emmaus what in the world is going on. Imagine how bewildering it is to know someone who was crucified. Someone that you had known and believed in and thought God was getting ready to do mighty things in your land and then... He's been crucified. 
they say in this text, they had high hopes that he would be the one to redeem Israel. That is, throw off the shackles of the Roman invaders and be a free people once again. They go with him to Jerusalem to see this great day. And rather than what they expect, this Jesus of Nazareth, in whom they had hoped, is arrested and hung on a cross to die. How bewildering would that be? Then three days into their grieving, as they're walking back, trying to process what's happened to the body, they get word. The word is that he is alive. He has been raised. God is at work here, and they're wondering, could it be? How is this possible? What is going on? They are not prepared. They're struggling to comprehend. They're struggling to figure out, is this just another plan gone awry? Or is God at work here in a way that they can believe in and trust? And just as they're having that discussion, Luke says, here comes Jesus and walks right up to them and begins to walk with them on this road to Emmaus. But Luke tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now this could be that God is for some reason not letting them recognize what's going on yet. But it also could be the grief, the fear, the bewilderment of the moment that so much is happening and swirling around them that they just can't recognize him. Hans Rosling is a Swedish doctor who's died recently, committed his life to working for better health care around the world. But he tells a story in the book Factfulness that I've read recently about a time when he was in his very first year on the job. He was working in an emergency room. In fact, he says it was his fifth day on the job. And a nurse comes running into the emergency room and says, there's been a plane accident and they're bringing the victims here. You need to be ready. And he said before he could hardly think, just seconds later, here came a gurney. Nurses pushing a man into his emergency room. He said the man was just twitching and he began to think through everything he had learned in medical school and he thinks maybe this guy's having an epileptic fit. He has on a life jacket still. He unzips the life jacket and pulls it off the man. He realizes that he's in some kind of military uniform and he needs to get the uniform off to treat him and he begins to pull on zippers and he said, oh my gosh, I never realized how many zippers and none of them seemed to release him from his military uniform and then just then he looks down and there's blood all over the floor and he realizes the man is wounded and there's so much blood he knows that he could be dead in seconds if he doesn't act now he yells at the nurse get four bags of blood and I mean now and the nurse takes off he's still trying to figure out what to do in his panic he looks at the man and says where does it hurt and the man tries to respond, but he says it's just kind of gibberish. He can't understand him. 
And then he thinks maybe he recognizes a little bit. Maybe it's Russian. And then he realizes, oh my gosh, this could be a Russian pilot. They are attacking Sweden. We did drills for this in elementary school. The next world war has just begun. And he says he is engulfed in fear and paralyzed. And just then the head nurse comes walking in. And she says to him, doctor, could you step off the life jacket? You've stepped on the bag that has the red dye in it. It's getting all over the floor. She knew who he was, that he was really a Swedish pilot. He was on a routine training mission. He had crashed, but he was pretty far out. He was in the icy water for 20 minutes. That accounted for the twitching and the gibberish. Rosling said he realized that in those moments he had made so many mistakes of judgment. There was nobody attacking Sweden. There was no Russian pilot. There was no blood. And there was no epileptic seizure. He had been wrong on all accounts. And then he writes what I put in your outline here. When we are afraid, we do not see clearly. Critical thinking is always difficult, but it's almost impossible when we are scared. Almost impossible when we are scared, when we live in fear. I would add it's also almost impossible when we're in deep grief, when we've experienced trauma, when there's been an unexpected death of someone close to us. Unfortunately, I had that experience as a young man. Happened on a week. I was working at a church as a youth director. I was over at Camp Egan with a group of kids leading a district camp. It was the days before cell phones. I got a phone call. Of course, it was up in the office. They had to bring me a message. They said, you need to call the church. So I went back to call the church on the payphone. I got a hold of them, and they told me that one of my colleagues from the church, one of my closest friends, had been shot, had died at the scene outside her home. It turned out to be a murder-suicide. It was a devastating experience. But I was thinking, I have responsibilities. I've got to still be here at camp. But it became clear within the next 12 to 24 hours, I was in no shape to lead camp. I was having trouble making decisions. I was having trouble concentrating. I was having trouble interacting with people in a beneficial way. I relinquished the leadership of the camp to one of my co-leaders and came back to Tulsa to join the family in their grief and to prepare for a funeral. I'd had people close to me die before in my immediate family. But I'd never experienced Someone who was so vital, so alive one day, and then gone the next day. Without preparation, without any time to get ready, without the ability to say goodbye. I was in shock. When you're in shock, it's very difficult to process anything. It's a terribly difficult experience 
to try to make sense of the world when something that tragic happens so close to you. I would suggest to you that that was the situation these two walking on the road to Emmaus are in. They're having trouble processing what has just happened to them. It's still the day of resurrection. But we celebrate it as a great celebration. But they are in the throes of the grief and the bewilderment. And no doubt they are overwhelmed trying to make sense of their lives as well as what has happened to Jesus. And he, when he walks up to them, Luke tells us in verse 17 that Jesus says to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? Luke says they just stand there at first and look sad. They're devastated. But then they begin to tell him about their friend Jesus of Nazareth and how they had such high hopes that he was the one to free our people. But then it had all turned. He had been crucified. They had killed him. And then when the women went to take care of the body, the body was gone. The women come back and tell the men. The men seem to have trouble believing it. They run to the tomb. They can't find a body either. But they have no vision of angels. They do not see him. They're not sure what has happened. And then in verse 25, Jesus says to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Now, that might have been quite a Bible study to be part of. How many would sign up if I said, this fall, Jesus is going to teach? We would all want to be there. We would all be listening. But the surprising thing, Jesus says, even after all of that, they still do not recognize him. They still do not realize that it's the risen Christ, that it's Jesus himself who is alive speaking to them. Luke tells us that only happens later once they get to the village and go in and sit down together for supper. In verse 30, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Even though he had taught them everything about himself and illuminated all the prophecies about who the Messiah was going to be. They didn't get it. They couldn't see him. They couldn't recognize him until they were sitting at a table and he broke the bread and blessed it and gave it to them. They recognize him in the breaking of the bread. They realize he is alive. He has been raised the proclamation that Christians have made throughout the ages is that we too can have that experience. We can recognize him in the breaking of the bread. When we gather around this communion table, we can recognize him 
as we take the bread and offer a blessing and break it and offer to you in the name of Christ. But it's not only that. This passage says there's actually four ways that we can recognize him, that we can come to understand who he is and connect with Christ as the risen Savior. Let's go through them quickly before we come to the communion table. I've put them in your outline. The first one was the vision of angels. They reveal it to the women. They tell the women, he has been raised. He is not here. That's one way that we connect with God through Christ is to have an extraordinary experience of insight or revelation. It doesn't happen every day, but many of you have had those experiences and shared them with me. That's one way. But secondly, the women come back and tell the others. They come back and tell what they have experienced. So the testimony of other people plays a role in coming to connect with God through Jesus Christ. Third is the study of scriptures. Luke makes it very clear that Jesus directs these two back to the scriptures, to the Hebrew scriptures in this case, walking them through the prophecies of what God is doing in the world and how he has come to be the embodiment, the fulfillment of all of that. And in fact, Luke adds the point that Jesus says to them, this is not a defeat this crucifixion is not a defeat. This is just the road to glory. God is going to reveal even more of the divine self to the world through this experience. And then fourth and finally, it happens at the communion table when people gather together in open heart and mind and prayer and thanksgiving for what God is doing in our midst. We try to make sure to say this is not any pastor's table. This is not any church's table. This is not a Methodist table. This is Christ's table. All who follow him are welcome and invited to come. And we can recognize him when we come together. We say a special prayer just before you're invited to come. It's in the bullet and I want to read it to you as you can reflect on it before your turn to come. We ask this of God. We say, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. Make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. Grant that we may go into the world in the strength of your Spirit to give ourselves for others in the name of of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a prayer that helps us recognize who Christ is and who we are called to be as we take on his name as disciples of Christ. Carol Hauslander was a Christian teacher, writer, and counselor in the early 1900s in England. She had some of those experiences where she felt like God was so very near. She describes one that was really pivotal in her life. She says it was an ordinary day. She had been at work. She got on the train to go home. The train was packed. Some people sitting, some standing, some just walking through the train, find, trying to find a place. All kinds of people, she said. 
And then all of a sudden, she said, I just felt like God was right there with us. I want to read to you how she wrote about this. She says, quite suddenly, I saw with my mind, but as vividly as a wonderful picture, Christ in them all. But I saw more than that. Not only was Christ in every one of them, living in them, dying in them, rejoicing in them, sorrowing in them. But because Christ was in them, and because they were here, it seemed to me the whole world was here too. All those people who had lived in the past and all those yet to come. I came out into the street and walked for a long time amidst the crowds. It was the same here on every side and every passerby, everywhere. Christ, everywhere. Christ. Christians proclaim that our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is to recognize Christ alive in the world today. Christ alive in our experiences, Christ alive in the scriptures, Christ alive in the testimony of others, Christ alive when we come to the table to bless and break and receive the bread. We come this morning with a prayer that we might recognize Christ alive in our lives and be filled with hope anew as we proclaim together Christ is alive.